Welcome to Mouthwash, TBD Conferences podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD, that's Technology, Behaviour and Data, and founder of the Emerging Technology Advisory, Hereforth. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by James Ball, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us. James is a man in search of the truth and holding power to account. He's currently overseeing the not-for-profit international reporting projects for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, as well as writing for various outlets from The Guardian to The New European. James and I spoke on Twitter Spaces, hence the quality of the audio isn't as you'd expect in a full studio setting. He's clearly doing important work. From his time at WikiLeaks to what he's doing today, James is a light shiner on wrongdoing and educating the world on power and control. Incredibly important for the next period of history, I think you'll agree. Please follow James on Twitter and buy the book. It's an eye-opening read. All right, I think that's a good place to get us going for the evening. Uh, my name is Paul Armstrong. Hello and welcome to Mouthwash. Uh, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident every weeknight uh, with me. I'm creator of the TBD conference that stands for Technology, Behavior and Data. It's based on the framework in a book that I put out. Uh, and it's me chatting with a very smart cookie. Uh, tonight's smart cookie is author, journalist, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, James Ball. Um, before we get going, um, please can you all just take a minute to help me promote Mouthwash tonight. Um, if you retweet a tweet that I will put in the top, that would be absolutely phenomenal. So I will just pop that into the space now and you should see it in about five or six seconds. There you go. Boom, it's up. If you could just all do me a really quick favor, click on it, retweet it. We'll get some people in the room and um, we'll get more questions and that sort of stuff. Um, we are not going to be taking uh, questions any other way other than via hashtag at the moment it's not uh, other audio spaces you pass the mic around and that sort of stuff we might do that in um in some spaces i don't really know but for the moment i like to just have a quick chat with the uh the, the talent or the guest as we say uh, james is in the room and we'll get going but before we do that i just wanted to um update you on a couple of things so number one we have um sponsors for the show so um for every person you entice into the space via the tweet here's another reason to tweet and retweet it regularly throughout the show um a tree is going to get planted in your honor and everyone's honor that comes into the room so those uh people over at ecology um who make offsetting carbon footprints super easy whether it's personally or your uh, company they're actually doing that so over the course of all of the mouthwashes we've got 20 of them in the first season um, we're going to add all of the people up that come into the room and um, plant trees in the TBD forest, which is um, a fun a fun thing to do and um, certainly very good for the environment. If you want to know more about ecology, head over to ecology.com, which is E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. So it's ecology, but with an I, not a Y. Again, phonetically terrible um, for me anyway. Um, right. Also, thanks to Shell for sponsoring the show. Shell has recently published um, a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner, um, obviously in step with society. Um, you can find out more about Shell and how they're powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. And I'll put that link up at the end as well. Um, really excited to announce, actually, we've got Dan Jevons, who's their uh, massive data geek. Um, he's going to talk about dig business digitalization towards the end of um, the series as well. Um, and I think after the year everyone's had um, and the way that businesses are reacting to it, it should be an interesting one to um, look at. Right. Without further ado, I would like to say, hello, James. How's it going? Hi there. It's uh, not going too badly. Um, I mean, I you know, I could be organising the ESL. 
<laughs> I mean, there's so many things going on at the moment. Um, I'm literally, uh, the, I was trying to just keep it just to mouthwash today, uh, but there is there's a few things going on in the world. I've been told, you know, an Apple announcement with people who are you know super excited as well. But yeah, there's um, yeah, there's lots of things going on. I, I, when I woke up this morning and the furore around the football and everything, I was just like, today's the day to just shut off the internet. <laughs> so I'm really excited that we are talking about that. And that. let me give you um, an introduction in case you aren't familiar, which I doubt uh, with James. But James is a Pulitzer Prize winning um, journalist author. Uh, I followed him on Twitter for many years and he still takes my tweets sometimes. He's written for The Guardian, um, a tiny company called WikiLeaks you might know of, BuzzFeed, The New European and The Washington Post. Um, I actually have his uh, third book here. I think it's, is it the third book? Um, it depends how you count them. I, I think it's the sixth, technically. Holy crap. Oh, yeah, the other... Th- I see what you're saying. Yeah, the other three. Okay, well, the sixth. He's written lots of books, but this is the very heavy one. Um, and that sort of stuff. So um, it's called The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Works. It's... Um, I mean, just reading the cover of it, it's uh, incredibly powerful uh, with the people that, A, you've got to say amazing, um, important words, but also who they are as well. Some incredible, incredible names, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, it's a look inside and at a world you never really get to see. So who controls the internet? And that's the thing. Uh, James' current role is global editor at the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. And um, he's all about holding power to account, shining a light on atrocities around the globe. And his sort of work surrounds uh, looking for the truth. And so when I asked him to do mouthwash, I said, let's just talk about the truth, sort of, you know, how we get sort of get there and that. And then he said, oh, let's do the book as well. And that sort of stuff. So I was very up for this and that sort of thing. Um, his work at WikiLeaks surrounded um, Cablegate, which, um, if you don't remember, was the publication of about, what, a quarter of a million classified US embassy cables in 2010. Um, he also worked on um, multiple documentaries, the Iraq war logs. Um, and I think it's safe to say you know you know the truth and what it takes to seek it. Um, so please do me a favour. Actually, let's just, um, before we uh, crack on, let me just give you a, an update on the Twitter spaces, if that makes says if you look at your screen you have lots of things down the bottom right so number one your mics are off because i haven't given you the mic but if you had a mic you, you could mute yourself and that sort of thing there's three dots as well which give you a few more things that you can do but the one i really care about at the moment is the heart down the bottom if you click that you can see some pretty pictures or emojis or emoticons whatever you want to call them if you can give james 100 or a wave right now just to make him feel welcome like a round of applause that he just can't hear at the moment um that would be phenomenal so you're seeing them pop up so that'd be very good thank you very much much i'm relieved to see that like not it's not all poop emojis or something that would that would have been hurtful (laughs) imagine if you could choose what it was and then you had to decipher everything it would be a nightmare wouldn't it (laughs) okay so now that you are uh everyone's uh hands up and that sort of thing welcome to mouthwash james you are the second person ever to grace the virtual auditory spacey thing and that sort of thing um i can't thank you enough for doing um so first and foremost, I want to hear your questions as well. You've got hashtag mouthwash show if you want to um, use it. I've seen a couple already, but please do uh, take the time to do that. If you haven't already, please do share the space. That's how we get more people in here. And um, James uh, obviously has a lot to say, so uh, it's very, very good. Right, James, um, I've got so much to ask you. I don't know if we'll get through it all, but uh, I'm excited to see how we do. Um, how's the cat, by the way? Uh, on my lap as I'm speaking I to you. <laughs> if you follow James for one thing, obviously make it his work and his uh, truth and that sort of thing. But if you are a cat fan as well, the commentary around the cat is amazing. I, I fully support. Um, right, okay, where to begin? Um, let's start with the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning. So, uh, 
What did what did I think of? Oh God, horribly! It was David Cameron. <laughs> that says uh, purely, purely, purely because I've been uh, just sort of pulling together a couple of pieces of reporting on him and uh, trying to sort of join up some of the different bits of. I mean, the problem is when you say you're joining things up, you're you could either be doing it like the person with red string and chalkboards in a basement and taking a bunch of unconnected things and turning it into something mad. And that can look a lot like investigative journalism. Or you could be trying to go, this thing that happened over here and this thing that happened over here have their root causes in something that happened a few years ago. And... You know, hopefully, as this is a new European piece that's coming up, um, I'm trying to sort of join up a little bit. All of these procurement scandals we had last year and paying too much for masks and Matt Hancock's neighbour and Matt Hancock's sister and Matt Hancock's Matt Hancock, all apparently sort of having companies that benefited from all of this. Sort of this, this stuff Cameron's been doing with Greensill and these things, I think, really come from the same set of decisions that were made in government about 10 years ago, not always by David Cameron, and weirdly, not actually necessarily with bad intentions from the people who did them. It's just they were groundbreakingly naive, and I think have set the stage for, you know, what what I think we all tend to look at as a quite bad set of current situations. Sorry, that was a longer answer than I intended. I just didn't want anyone to think it was David Cameron in any other context. I was going to say, I was like, it's always good to give context when you're adding when you're talking about David Cameron. Um, one thing you touched on there was, oh, it could you, you mentioned, oh, it could seem like you were like tying red bits of string around a board and that sort of thing. How obviously that's a Hollywood version and everyone's sort of like psyche and sort of headspace and that sort of stuff. How realistic is that? Because we've all seen whiteboards with people drawing spider diagrams and that sort of thing. Is that how most investigative journalism sort of works or is it, nope, we're all on mirror boards and that sort of stuff. I see, we'll get into sort of like the digital side of it, but just give us a quick like, nope, that's completely rubbish. Most people don't work like that. You'd be amazed how often we stick post-it notes onto walls or how many times either me or a reporter I'm working with has had to try and do a massive spider diagram of something. Um, I, I've sort of tried to do a bit of a rule at the Bureau where we are trying to publish at least 50% fewer spider diagrams this year than last um, because they tend to be good for us to think about what's connected and how it works. And if you're looking at a big network of companies, which one owns which one, how did they sell each other, um, you do tend to do a lot of the quite cliched things. I mean, very few people I know stand in underground car parks to talk to their sources every time, but yeah. even that's happened. <laughs> you know, well, I've, I've done car park interviews with people. Um, but um, but the, the sort of the difference between the let's make all these connections and what I think is really good public service investigative journalism is the best sort of investigative reporters I know try and make a theory of the case, try and look at possible connections, and then they try and absolutely kick it to shreds. Mm. How might I be wrong? How might I have exaggerated this? How might they be able to disprove this? Um, you know, libel laws work in such a way that, you know, I have to be right every time someone only has to be lucky or catch a stupid mistake in a case once. And it, that might just take down, you know, take down me. I don't have a house, happily, so can't lose my house. Um, <laughs> but, you know, take down the place that has taken a risk on me to publish, take that down. 
Um, so I think it's a lot easier to do things that look like good investigative journalism than things that are good investigative journalism. Mm. Um, staying on that theme for a sec, what is the general sort of state of investigative journalism in 2021? And can you set the sort of scene for us? Are we in a good place? Are we in a terrible place? Um, I mean, it's fashionable when you're talking with journalism to say everything's terrible, everything's in decline, we've got all sorts of structural problems. And all of that's true. But there's a sort of little glimmer of hope around investigation, I think. I think you're seeing major publications try and make more of their money from the people who read them rather than from just from advertisers or just from stack and high, sell them cheap clicks. And to be a prestige product, you need some prestige areas. And the idea that you can be doing public interest accountability journalism seems to work for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. It won't be the main draw. And let's be honest, very few of us only read investigative serious pieces. But we like to know they're there. And so you've got growing investigation desks internationally at major publications. And then you've got organisations like the Bureau, where I work, which about two or th well, three years ago was about 10 to 15 people and now is more than 30 and still growing. So you've got lots of good not-for-profit, collaborative, investigative newsrooms. You've got ICIJ, you've got OCCRP, you've got ProPublica, you've got uh, Disclose over in France, Investigations Desk. And then you've got sort of interesting sort of hybrid type things like Open Democracy over here that do quite a lot of investigative journalism and almost crowdfund for it. And so it's not perfect. There's always pressures. There's always difficulties. But actually, thanks to the fact the public care, some of the public will pay for it and some philanthropy groups see public interest in it. Investigation's not as bad as it could be. Um, the one question I really, so I don't get to interview many people at TBD. I just leave the stage to other people and that sort of stuff. So when I do, I, I really like to ask one question and I ask it for most people, friends and acquaintances and everything. It's about what drives you. And I think that's incredibly important when it's a job like investigative journalism, not only because it's really important to know ethics and where things are coming from and sort of, um, the lineage of things, but also just because I think it's such an interesting pursuit of the truth, if that makes sense, or the facts and that sort of element is it's, it's different from just straight journalism, I think. There's something else about it. James, what drives you? How, why did you get into it? Um, I don't think investigative journalism is always driven by the most healthy of motivations. Um, I'll, I can only speak for myself, but I think part of it is being someone who, in, in a certain way, if, if I think I'm in the right or if I think there's an important cause, I actually like conflict. Uh, I would like to clash with people. I would like to take people on. And there's something almost romantic about the fact that investigative journalism, you've really only got the tools that any normal member of the public has. You've got no extra powers. You've got no power of arrest. You've got no huge money behind you. You've got sort of your wit, your hard work, and however you can persuade people to help sort of hold power to account um but a lot of journalism you go in either to be, to be liked or to be famous or to be and you do get like let's not investigative journalists quite a few of us are complete egomaniacs um there's a lot of very modest very humble ones as well to be fair um 
I'm not saying we're sort of walking saints of any kind or that we don't get praise and it's very pleasant. But the day-to-day is often quite adversarial. You know, you call a press office and uh, say you're from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. You've not lit up their day. They're not thinking, oh, I'm going to get a cover in a magazine. That's going to be great. You know, my client will love it. Um, And so I find it's a way if you're someone who has a temperament towards conflict, has a sort of that kind of thing, to try and still do something constructive and good for society. Uh, you know, if you're not someone who would be more suited to a more classically public interest role. Interesting. Uh, let's let's change tack for just for a sec. Um, injustice seems to be increasing across the board, around the globe. And I think big tech appears to be to blame for a lot of what you say. But I was really interested when you say in the book that we need to think bigger. Um, can you explain? what you mean by that and what you would like people to sort of do if that makes sense yeah um i mean if if anyone's going to read one book on this i I feel like i probably should say it should be mine um you know i i worked quite hard on it but actually if they've got to read only one book and really only one um i would read tim Wu's the new gilded age um and it's it's quite a compelling case i try and sort of evidence it and build it up and use some of it some of it to make my own argument but this the sort of the, the clever bit about that lens is it looks at the early 20th century and what was happening and you had huge monopolies acting in well trusts as they were called then acting in incredibly aggressive ways to seize whole markets and to price gouge and to get political power and to expand in in the ways that they did and we tend to think most often about trust busting, about making antitrust law and, you know, competition commissions and all of these as how it was tackled. But actually, the trusts were a part of a bigger phenomenon, which was industrialization. And industrialization overall had the potential to make us a lot richer and a lot better off. You know, there's a reason I suspect most people who are listening to this are doing so from a a lit house with gadgets. It's probably got indoor plumbing. It's got fridges. It's got all of this. But initially, industrialization made lots of people poorer. It made lots of people sick. It exploited people. It took skilled labor and turned it into, you know, skilled self-employed business-owning labor, you know, if you're a home sewer or all sorts of things, and dragged you into de-skilled, unprotected roles. There was nothing about industrialization that meant it would share the benefits evenly. So not only did we sort of invent antitrust law in that era, trade unions really were born properly in that era. Uh, Health and safety legislation was born in that era. The modern welfare state was born in that era. Um, A sort of system of social welfare just through taxation and services was born. Um, you know, we kind of created childhoods by expanding mandatory education. Um, we changed all of our society because the technological era changed. And people weren't going with each of these changes. This is because of new technology. Mm. You know, they didn't know that was the motivation behind this big package of measures. But I think there's a very strong case. It was one of the huge driving factors. Now, you know, I think we are in a new era. I don't actually buy the people who say automation is inevitable and killing jobs and whatever job you do in 10 years, it'll be a robot. But 
we are in an information economy. You know, the world's biggest listed companies, the top five are all tech companies and quite a few of the next 15 are too. Um, you know, you can see that the profits, the benefits, the sort of changes in this are concentrated. And we're all still barely trying to, you know, we're having a debate about which 20th century tools we should be using to tackle these uniquely 21st century problems. And we need to sort of throw out the old toolkit and build the new ones like they did in the early 20th century. Mm. I, I want to come back to that um, pro probably towards the end, but let, let's talk about the book. Um, you, it's really set out in an interesting way, and I really like that. Um, the first part, you sort of describe the physicality of the internet. Um, and it's a shock, I think, to a lot of people to hear that the entire connectivity is a bunch of wires under the ocean that are not necessarily the most secure and that sort of stuff. And there's a lot, you know, that, that's protecting them and that sort of stuff. But um, I think what would be interesting is um, talk, talk us through the physicality of it. And then I would like to sort of talk about the other th the, the three parts. <coughs> Well, I, I, I sort of quite like it. It's, there's never there's one of the best bits of utopian PR in uh, the last decade or two has been calling the internet the cloud because it sounds mm. sort of so beautiful and so futuristic. It does sound like a sci-fi thing. You know, if you went back to about 1990 and said that everyone would quite casually as a matter of, you know, day-to-day like -day conversation where a person in the street would understand you, oh, my data's on the cloud, oh, it's in the cloud, uh, oh, is it not on your cloud kind of thing? It just makes it sound like this bit of natural architecture that's all around us. And, of course, as, as people have noted, the cloud is just a nice term for someone else's computer. Um, and similarly, the, the Internet isn't this sort of floating thing in the air. At its core, it is just a sort of web of cables around the world. And I think people tend to think of these cables as much more dramatic than they are you know i think i sort of at some level in my head imagined things four feet five feet across you know reinforced metal and in practice it's a bunch of hose pipes like fiber optic cables are really really thin and for most of their lengths across the oceans and across the continents they're really quite small and like really they, they look pretty innocuous and things happen like dredgers will go and snip through a cable um, while fishing. And they've got little repair boats that literally just pick up the cable off the ocean floor. And then someone, you know, brings it on the deck of a boat and someone just sort of grafts in a new bit. Um, it's all a little bit more mundane than we thought. Um, but part of why I was talking about the physicality of this network was... We so often, certainly in the early era, the internet was talked about as if it was separate from the physical world. It was a new, non-political place. And so much of when you think about it growing out of the old telecom systems aren't. Look which countries have the most cable connections. Look which countries are connected to which countries. And also look at things like the protocols and which countries route via which countries. You can sort of still see a lot of old colonial relationships and trade routes in the physical architecture of the internet mm. and certainly in the logical architecture of the internet and i think even that just serves as a good reminder that you, we're not in some new disconnected world 
and the power relationships in the old world are really important in the online one. No, definitely. I think that one chapter sort of like really fed my mind to sort of think like, wow, that is actually just an interesting system of, of how it was sort of built. And you think like, I wonder if it would be built the same today if we if we knew what we knew now and that sort of stuff. Um, the, the book uh, is in three parts. Um, sorry for the motorbike that just rolled past. Um, and it, it's sort of like, in my mind, I broke it up into history, ownership, and then sort of future battles because everyone loves a battle, even though I shouldn't use that terminology anymore. Um, each is then subsected with these sort of in-depth looks at different types of people um, that you're categorising, I think, uh, at different stages along the way. Um, you mentioned it's not a tech book so much as a, sorry, a tech story as much as a human story. And that's something I really sort of took to heart as well. Um, and you said one place, the internet is a monopoly-making machine, an engine designed to concentrate power, attention, and more in the hands of those who already have it. And I just thought now that really sort of like fits. It, it sort of contradicts what you said earlier. But I think 50 years on with this thing and 20 years of the internet actually being sort of useful for the majority, or, you know, not necessarily majority, um, do you think we've ruined it or is it savable? Um I sort of, I, th I think it's just, it's neither. It's, it's has become just sort of the architecture of, of the modern world. And so we can't really think of it as some sort of entity or service to be ruined or saved. It's, it's not the internet that needs saving, it's people. Um, is it working in the interests of most of the people who are on it? Is it working in the interests of most of the people who are in the world? I think probably not, you know, I, I do think, you know, everything on the internet is a result of human decisions. So the odd thing with the internet is the people who remember it when it had four computers on it and was a very much a sort of academic sideshow are still alive. And decisions those people made, for good or for ill, have rolled through and become global architecture. And so you have this thing that the people who built it, many of them are still alive and with us, and even they don't really feel like they've got a grip on it or understand how it operates anymore or the sort of knock-on effects you know sociological economic effects mm. of what it's done and i don't think any one person possibly could um but i think we do sort of you know i hope more and more we stop thinking of online and offline as distinct places or the internet as something that could be saved or turned off or ruined you know that they're so increasingly merged it's not about sort of saving or changing the internet is making an internet that works for us instead of an internet that works for a very small slice of us and exploits the rest just like industrialization was a net benefit that mm. early on was distributed to give a huge benefit to a tiny group and costs to a much bigger group i think you, there's a case to be made that there's a huge benefit for a small group with the internet a sort of group that has some benefits from it nets and probably quite a lot then of negative externalities and we can redistribute that around and make it a technology that works for humanity rather than you know to be really cliched for one percent of humanity mm. on, on a practical level how how do we regain that power is it just no you have to vote for the other people or, or what what is it is there a an email that we need to email like that's very simple <laughs> 
obviously, and that sort of thing. But I, I find sometimes we have these massive issues, and I think the book really does a good um, job of saying, like, no, 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 it feels lofty, but actually it's not. What are the, the specific directions that a lot of people should be taking either every day or, you know, that sort of thing to, to sort of counter this? I, th- I think there's lots of small things. I tend to sort of, just like I, I don't think climate change is impossible to fix, but we need to think of it as a political problem rather than a, you know, use a paper straw instead of a plastic straw type consumer thing. I think fixing the internet is political, but that doesn't mean there aren't small things you can do for yourself. You know, work out what you're doing for habit versus what you're doing um, intentionally. But I think... That if we really want change, what are the things that we don't like about the internet? It does things like it enables certain business models and destroys other business models. And thus, I don't think you'd have the gig economy existing without the internet. And so how do we fix problems like that? That actually might be in modern wage and employment laws. And that doesn't necessarily mean demanding everyone goes back to a 40 or a 60 hour work week on a traditional contract that sort of works in a very inflexible way but it is making sure that you know you don't have sort of people working three different gig economy apps for poverty wages when they used to have much better jobs you know move fast and break things when it comes in contact with real world people and businesses well, yes, you break things that worked quite well for people. And so you can think about little bits of the problem. I think we need as well to really, really, as voters, demand that lawmakers start understanding tech rather than just randomly sort of shouting at it. Uh, you have Democrats just constantly shout sort of antitrust at uh, tech. Uh, and you have Republicans constantly shouting censorship at tech. And actually, for all that they act as cowards and pay a fortune to lobbyists, I don't think tech worries very much about either because they just don't understand enough to actually do regulation that would tackle it. Mm. I do think you also, just as anyone who's done a bit of even basic economics knows, when you start seeing big companies taking multi-billion dollar profits at huge margin year after year, you know something is going wrong. That's excess profits. Things do need to be done to do that. But I think saying antitrust law is such a glib way out because, firstly, the law's been messed around in ways that it's very hard to actually use. But also, you need to think bigger. It's about changing how business taxation works. It's about changing rules around it. The big one, though, is we really have to start thinking about data properly And that's not just through the lens of privacy. It's through the lens of things like ownership. It's through the lens of intellectual property. It's through the lens of sort of rights. You know, our current philosophy with data is a little bit like uh, if you thought of of an oil company that could go, hey, you know, you've got some oil on your land. Um, That's useless to you. You've got no idea how to extract it. You don't know how to refine it. It doesn't have value until I've done loads of stuff with it. So I'm just going to put an oil well in your back garden and I'll give you uh, 500 quid a year. Cool. Thanks. And they go and take billions and billions and, you know, you get you get a T-shirt. Um, we, we keep saying data is the new oil, data is the new commodity. Hmm. Well, that makes us the thing in the pipes and uh, someone else getting all the cash from it. 
I think there are models where people can make money and people can run services that we want, but that we get a share of it too. No, I, I agree. I think it's interesting, isn't it? When it comes to the um, FCC, they, uh, from everything we've seen thus far, they seem to be pretty sort of like toothless, um, you know, with some shining examples and stuff. Actually not. You know, they are one of the biggest things that can actually not damage, but, you know, change some things for these companies. Um, when do you think regulation's going to come in to sort of fish out, um, you know, some of the issues or dish out a few lashings? Um, do you think it'll be... Uh, useful do you think it'll be an overreach uh, in the eu you have a different example and obviously you know we've dished out really big percentages of profit you know as warnings and that sort of stuff us doesn't seem to be willing really or powered enough to do that um or is it just war games and um you know the only way we'll learn is we don't play with them i don't i don't think facebook is scared of eu regulators i think eu regulators like talking a big game and always back off um, you know, EU regulator knows every time that it launches an investigation or something into one of the companies, every newspaper will run, this could cost them 4% of GDP, etc. Mm. It's Facebook and Google really well to see that because uh, it makes sort of your regular reader go, oh, someone's doing something about it. Someone's holding them to account. Mm. And then what you'll see is that it's to do with how products in a particular type of google shopping search are displayed next to one thing or another and the inquiry tends to take about three years and be immensely technical and then google will admit it did something wrong or facebook or whoever and pay about 50 million euros or you know three minutes profit and so the regulator gets to kind of get weeks and months of headlines you know any big systemic conversation gets kicked into the long grass mm. and everyone gets to go hey look how great we are i think the tech companies are quite happy to keep playing that game and you know be appropriately shocked and offended at these uh, aggressive probes at, at the appropriate moments um and in practice i think until laws change that's just going to be a phony war and the more that the big tech companies can carry on with these looking like big important battles the happier they'll be it's why this us you know 49 states antitrust suit against facebook was similarly there facebook won exactly that fight you know it looks tough i'm sure some of the people who are behind it really mean it and are incredibly well intentioned but they're playing big tech's game there Oh God! Uh, I I did say to everyone we would leave you more confident, not necessarily. More... <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's the right answer. It's the right answer. Um, so, I mean, oh Lord, that is a bit depressing. But so, okay. So let's say uh, you've got a magic wand. What do you change to make that scenario happen? To make Facebook and and Co. It's not just Facebook. Um, sit up and take account. I mean, you eventually we have to say that. We, firstly, we have to separate. Like, this would genuinely, sounds petty, this would be my dream for the first step because, you know, from little shoots grow mighty oaks. Mm. We need to separate the idea of fixing the internet and fixing society from fixing content moderation. People are not polarised because of Twitter. People are not polarised because of Facebook. They are polarised for a whole bunch of reasons, and these are 
just one sort of catalyst among many. Um, you know, not least because in a lot of Western countries, average wages have not gone up now for about 15 years. That is not what people are used to. There are economic factors underlying this stuff. There are horrible, racist, sexist tensions underneath a lot of this. Mm. The internet did not create these. And we sort of, and so often when people sort of say, how do we fix the internet? They end up coming up with a new proposal to moderate comments under newspaper articles. Um, this isn't that. And so if we kind of understood we're having different debates here and that, you know, there is a lot going on, we might be able to do it because it feels like sometimes if people feel like if we could just get rid of nasty Facebook comments, all of the rest of this would fix itself. Um, the broader thing is we need laws that I suspect we need lots of little laws rather than one big magic fix, you know, or sort of lots of medium sized laws. Uh, you know, when I look at the sort of when I look back at the Gilded Age stuff, it wasn't that antitrust came along and then fixed all the societal problems. People looked at the actual problems facing people and went, how do we ameliorate this one? You know, children are working in factories, let's make that illegal. Um, people are getting injured too often in factories, let's make it more expensive for factories to injure people than to not injure people. Um, you know, let's bring legal consequences on their owners. You know, what happens now when people are too old to work in a factory? Well, do we need a pension? How do we get a pension? People sort of actually looked at the problems affecting people. I think at the moment we're trying to kind of go, uh, the internet, what do we do? And that's why the fixes sort of don't work. We're not trying to fix people. We're trying to fix the technology. Mm. No, I, I, I think it's a very good point. I think... Um and their use of the technology is always at the core. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, move fast and break things. I want to see if those people can fix them and no one seems to be forcing them to fix them. And that's my that my biggest sort of cause with people who use that sort of phrase and, you know, uh, idolise that poster and it's, you know, office porn and that sort of stuff. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, can we, can you just not and just think about the ramifications a bit more. I'm all for looking at potential, but we, we have to think more about um, what's happening uh, before we actually implement things, um, I think, is, is a powerful one. Speaking of, um, uh, you know, interesting characters, should we say, um, I really enjoyed the um, the latter section of the book, which was all about sort of cyberpunk activism and that sort of thing, activists, um, and sort of like who is listening in. You mentioned governments earlier. Let's talk about that for a bit. Um, your career's seen you in the absolute thick of that. Um, you know, WikiLeaks, Guardian, um, your, your job now um, at the Bureau. Tell me what learnings have stuck with you most from your time at these places? Um, God, <laughs> I mean, you know, on a very cynical level, it could be never trust anyone, but that tends not to be, uh, be it really. That's, uh, yeah. How do you join those up? I think one of the things that's really struck me is, um, you know, I can, I can remember that Snowden did an interview, I think on the daily show. Um, and the, the show had done a fairly clever thing are stopping a bunch of people outside Times Square and asking, um, you know, do you care about government bulk collection? Do you care about mass interception? And people sort of largely said, oh, no, not very interested, not very interested, not very interested. 
you know, I, I, yeah, whatever, if they need it. Um, and then they had the same person asking, obviously, different tourists, uh, what did they think about the government collecting their nudes? And everyone sort of acted really quite repelled and quite shocked, said that would be awful, said that would be sort of quite dangerous. And, uh, you know, they, they were teeing Snowden up to go, well, of course, if they're collecting our data, they're collecting that in it. But it's not like the government does have some big database of your nudes. And what, what sort of struck me watching that was uh, actually, yes, they do. Um, and they it, it was sort of, it was a story we did um, with, with The Guardian. And they'd come up, this was quite early internet, I say early internet, early this era. But they'd discovered a way to intercept webcams and they had some of their targets were using Yahoo web chat, it was. Um, and for various reasons, it was technologically easier for them just to grab one clip, I think, every five or ten seconds from every Yahoo web, web sort of chat that they saw, uh, like vid, uh, webcam chat, than to just do it for their targets. And so they did it, but told people, you know, only search it when you need to. And they'd had to put a reminder around. They sort of had a quite sheepish note going, Turns out when people are doing webcam chats, quite a lot of time they're not wearing all of their clothes and they're engaging in adult activities. Mm. And they'd come up with some automatic filters to try and find this stuff, but had also had to remind people not to look through it recreationally. <laughs> um, and so, you know, on the taxpayer dime, there's an argument GCHQ built the world's then biggest porn collection. Mm. Um, which sort of always struck me as this stuff is always invasive, even when people sort of say it isn't. Yeah. But until you humanise it in those kind of ways, even if those feel a bit petty and a bit silly, um, you know, I think I think people end up feeling quite remote and quite disconnected from it. Mm. You also just culturally have very different responses. Post-Snowden, the US actually came up with sort of some new restrictions on domestic surveillance at least yeah um whereas the uk actually dramatically tightened its surveillance law um and so you know the framing i wish we'd got across better was you know especially having been a security correspondent who covered several of the I think we had five successful terror attacks in the UK in the space of 18 months, uh, some from the far right, some from, you know, so-called Islamist groups. Yeah. And in each instance, it didn't seem to be a failure of mass surveillance. It was a failure of targeted surveillance. And I've never seen areas of government have so little scrutiny as bulk surveillance ones. You know, we know that community-led, targeted human intelligence works we know traditional surveillance and building community trust works. And it feels like because in the UK, at least, we don't scrutinise the intelligence agencies like we do the rest of government. They spend these huge amounts of money on these invasive programmes that sort of create the potential for adversaries and others to get access to information or for spies to stalk their exes or you name it, all of which happens. Um but also, we don't spend the money on the much more effective stuff that might keep us a lot safer. Mm. And we, we always sort of do this civil liberties framing. We never do this, actually, 
you know, the journalists who worked at WikiLeaks, who worked at Snowden, also live in the same country as everyone else and want their families and their friends to be safe. Yeah. Just on the point with Snowden, why do you think... Um... First of all, do you want to give your sort of very quick overview of what Project Tempora or the program was, the Project Tempora program? Um, and then I want to ask you, why do you think more outrage isn't happening about it? Um, I should really flag there's nothing like being in a sort of secret Guardian newsroom bunker and uh, saying uh, Tempora and seeing everyone look a little bit hopeful and then realise, no, it's Tempora and <laughs> no one's getting some delicious middle class snack. Um, It's quite interesting in that Snowden didn't dump documents in the way that WikiLeaks did. It was always spoken of as if he did. He'd had concerns on a few specific programs, things like Prism, which we published on the second day of uh, publishing those stories. He kind of went, I specifically have issues with this one. But on others, especially with the GCHQ stuff, he said, look, I've been in this world for a long time. I'm not a journalist. I don't know what's going to be shocking or significant or in the public interest. That's your job, not mine. Um, And so he put a restriction on us that we couldn't just dip into them and tell interesting stories. It wasn't we couldn't take some information that was in there and go, hey, this there was this really cool operation in Pakistan and it was quite scary and it was quite, we had to do it through the framing of what he was sort of blowing the whistle on. Or he'd asked us to do that and when we looked through, we agreed that was where the public interest was. Uh, There's loads of stuff we could have reported just because it was cool. But if there may be a risk to publishing, you don't want to take it except for in the public interest. Um, and so when we came to the GCHQ thing, it wasn't like having a little list of here are what Edward says the stories are. It was sort of like reading the instruction manual of an immensely complicated system that's in very arcane sort of buzzword heavy, code word heavy languages where there's no outside people you could ask for help. Um, and Tempora was the one program that Snowden had actually flagged up as this is the GCHQ one you should look into. And this slightly dates it, but uh, it, we quite quickly started calling it Sky Plus for the internet. Um, huh. And more or less, the best way to describe it is almost any data that flew in and out of the UK that caught a GCHQ probe, um, they would save all of it for about three days uh, and the metadata for about two weeks. Uh, and they stored lots of little bits of it longer than that. But it was essentially being able to rewind the internet and have a look through everything. Um, and it was just quite an astonishing thing. Um, you know, I, again, I don't think we've ever heard arguments for the effectiveness of that. And it is, to me, quite clearly intrusive. Um, the UK's policy on this, by the way, is your privacy is only violated when anything intercepted is read by a human. Um, And so a machine taking it, a machine looking through it, the fact of it being stored is no intrusion at all. Um, And so that's sort of how schemes like that get past the seeming protections of the UK Human Rights Act. European courts have disagreed, but each time the, the technicality of one scheme is lost in that challenge, 
the government just slightly changes the law it's done under or the way the program works minimally and the whole thing starts again and at each stage everything's secret so you don't know what you don't know to try and prove that this one is no different from the last one um so you end up with these unaccountable bulk surveillance systems it just feels like for a little while on the internet it was sort of possible to collect everything and listen to everything. This was never possible in the offline world. So you get the Home Office constantly saying end-to-end encrypted chats are outrageous. Uh, You know, how can these happen? And to me, it just sounds a little bit like, how come we don't have a microphone on every pub table? These (laughs) dark pubs, we don't collect. You know, people could go in them, they could say anything you know, over a pint, they could plot six different terror attacks. And because we don't have a microphone on that pub table, we wouldn't know. You know, stop pubs now. We need to take on big pubs until they put the microphones on. And people say, you're barking. Um, but for some reason, online, anything that's private is regarded as suspicious and bad. Yeah. Um, and again, this is why for me, I think some of this will just be generational. We have to stop thinking of online over here and offline over here. And I just realized I'm doing a really helpful hand gesture. Not if you can see, sorry. Um, and, and the more we realize they're the same world, the more we'll be able to kind of go back off, eh? Mm. Um, you mentioned tech and sort of pulling everything into pipes and that sort of stuff. Um, how much do you think AI is going to impact your world of investigative journalism, but also data capture in the next sort of 24 months um, to give back to our lens, if that makes sense. Oh, I don't, I sort of don't know. Um, I'm kind of interested in AI research assistance um, mm. or that kind of thing. Uh, I think we've got huge potential to get all sorts of things wrong in all the ways that we worry about pattern matching and mass data for intelligence agencies and so on. Uh, it's quite tricky, but a lot of what a lot of investigative journalism is incredibly boring sort of plodding through documents and trying to work out if these two companies with similar names are they totally unrelated or is one a typo of the other and they are the same or they do have these ownerships so lots of sort of smart research and smart assistance type stuff um feels quite interesting to me mm. if you could combine that with you know, these, you're starting to see things with uh, GPT-3 on the writing side, you know, where on some basic stories, you can cut out some of the writing of simple financial journalism or bits of sports journalism or bits of that. Now, with inventive, creative, invested owners who care about the media, that would be used to let humans concentrate on really good quality output while covering the bases on the simple stuff. What I worry about with the kind of investors and people who own a lot of the media is that it will be used to produce even worse news, even more cheaply. Um, So there are good ways and bad ways it it can be used, but I think most of it will be sort of pre-writing assistance in much the same way as you get one-line email replies from Gmail now. I think you'll start to see it it will be able to suggest a few paragraphs. It might even have a draft of an email that you just read over and decide whether to send or not. 
Um, and I think we'll start to see that in journalism, but we'll also start to see that in research and in more advanced research tools. But I think, you know how self-driving is talks about different levels, and I think five is fully autonomous. You know, I think if we're talking about journalism assistance, we're probably heading, you know, not, we're not we're not at five. We might be moving towards about two and lots yeah. of little things making it easier. I don't think we're yet at the, the big round of AI-led layoffs. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure we are across society. Um, you know, I think if automation was suddenly making everything more productive, we'd be seeing productivity go up. We're not. I, I 100% agree. I think AI is one of those things that's um, not overblown because the potential for it to change society for better and worse is definitely 100% there. I think um, how quickly that will happen is is definitely up for debate. Um, the, the, the technology is definitely moving there. I don't think they're openly sharing where they are, and they're meant to be, and they've publicly said that they will, but you know that is corporate uh, benefits. Speaking of corporates and sort of larger people that tend to hide behind a wall, um, China and um, that ecosystem is pretty much fended off. How do you, how do investigative journalism work Western to China, if that makes sense? Western to East. Um, honestly, it very, very rarely does. It's incredibly oh. difficult to investigate anything that happens inside China. And the people who sort of made it into and out of um sort of Shangjing province where you've got the this awful sort of systemic abuse of the Uyghur people it's mm. astonishing and sometimes that's uh Uyghur people themselves who've come out and told their story or some people have managed some forms of limited access but where I sort of tend to find we can get levers and we can get eyes in from the west are either in the financials and the interactions with the rest of the world um, mm. or are in what's happening in Hong Kong. And while there are, you know, while it's getting harder and harder for people to report from Hong Kong and report what's happening in Hong Kong, yeah. but I think, you know, we, we owe a big debt to the people who are still making the effort to do it, and I think we owe them more attention than we pay them. Mm. Um, but I think where, you know, what the, the few occasions I've managed to do anything on account, a China and accountability journalism is tied to offshore structures so which countries do they have you know do prominent relatives of chinese officials for example have businesses and offshore clients where are they taking money out where are they looking at that but also where is the sort of chinese sort of state and the, the ruling party where are they interacting overseas what are they trying to do you know, what's going on with Belt and Road? What's going on with the digital Belt and Roll? What's going on with China's bid to kind of be at the very cutting edge of an international sort of working cryptocurrency, yeah. um, which Facebook's actually kind of at the forefront of trying to beat them. You know, the Libra coalition, part of their cell when they're walking into the big regulators and to big political players is, look, it's as or Xi Jinping, who do you want this to be? Mm. I think we should accept that framing, but it's significant and interesting that Facebook are making it. 
I, I agree. I'm, I'm interested in cryptocurrency as pertains to the larger it, not necessarily the crypto bros element of it, if that makes sense. Um, definitely one. Um, we, we, we are covering crypto later on in the series, so 100% uh, we'll be taking that comment back to them as well. Um, one final question, just that's coming on the hashtag from Jaswati. I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, hello, will China surpass Android and iOS with its own Harmony operating system? Um, yes, but not yet. Um, I think there'll be enough reluctance on international take-up. Now, mm. I think I think there's, it's increasingly becoming a point of pride as well as a point of strategy yep. for China to have some of its own systems with broad take-up internationally. Google, more than Apple, is well ahead of a lot of that because its model with Android is that it isn't wanting people to pay for it. It's wanting you to get into their ecosystem. Mm. So Google isn't pricing people out. And so you're seeing lots of people in countries that are, you know, even in countries that are bypassing the wired internet and moving straight into 4G, 5G, et cetera, there's mm. not big barriers to entry to the some of the Western mobile ecosystems that there might have been. So they're playing a clever game, and Western tech is playing a huge game trying to discredit China. Uh, I mm. think it's quite short-sighted by the U.S., uh, if any country wants to kind of go, isn't it a bit bad if one country has control over so much of your internet architecture? Doesn't that give them too much power over you? Um, people might start noticing quite how much power the US has over the internet architecture and wondering about that. You know, my read on a lot of the Huawei attempts to run the internet backbone is that it's actually defensive. Uh, you know, they want a certain share of it just so that they wouldn't be vulnerable to the kind of massive all-out cyber attack that yeah. everyone kept setting out China could do if it got a certain share too. You know, it's a global internet. In some ways, we're going to have to learn to share the architecture. And that's, you know, that's probably going to mean actually changing the security at the core of the internet so that whoever's operating it doesn't have quite so much ability to do clever and innovative attacks. Um, but on the specific thing, I think China's progress in getting Chinese-owned tech giants with big influence outside of mainland China is still really quite slow. You know, the best bet was TikTok, and I think that was much more a company that happened to be Chinese, than a Chinese strategic asset, than was yeah. made out in a lot of coverage. But I think they'd still like that. I'm just not sure... It's it's going all that well. No, I, I would agree with that. Um, okay, uh, we are almost at the end. Um, we do a special section on mouthwash every night, um, which is called Desert Island Tweets. See what you did there? So instead of asking the, uh, the guest uh, to pick their favourite song and tell us what it means to them or a memory, I'm asking them to pick one or two um, tweets. Uh, we'll do one today, if you don't mind, James. Um, yeah. You chose this one, and I still i am not sure I 100% um, understand it, but so please explain it. What what, what does it mean to you? How does it change your thinking? It's, um, it's, I, please, please, people do look at this tweet because it's possibly the just dumbest joke that I've seen. And I think of it at least once a week. Um, and it's, it's basically they've, they've had a misprint on the magazine and the headline has shifted down a line. And so I think I'm, I'm fairly sure it's meant to be who's a dumb blonde now. But they've ended up printing, who blondes are dumb now? 
And, um, you know, Glenn Moore, who uh, tweeted this way back in 2014, sort of, I've always pictured his tweet as being done very much like uh, Raw Sarge in Watchman, you know, the sort of really overdramatic, portentous, serious thing. And, you know, I've, I, I, I think it goes with having a profile and with being controversial. But for a, you know, I'm not straight, but for a white man, I, I have had 10 years of getting abuse since before it was cool. Turns out if you fall out with Julian Assange in 2010, there are a lot of people who are ready to tell you you're a massive corporate sellout shill who works for MI6 and the CIA. Um, people have clearly not seen uh, the way I live if they think I have that many paymasters. Um, and so sometimes I'm just in a terrible mood with Twitter and a terrible sort of thing. And I'll just find myself thinking, who blondes a dumdy now? And remember that it's still this place that gives you sort of connections with, you know, there's people I've never met who I've known for 10 years. There's sort of just still every day the most ridiculous jokes. There's pictures of cats that I've not met, you know, which is very important to me. Um, and so who blondes a dumdy now is just my default kind of, it's always like a little, you know, cheer me up mantra if I'm having a bad Twitter day. So <laughs> it's it's a completely stupid one. I, I'm sorry, I feel like I, sh- I owe you something more profound. But, uh, but, but no. There's an island tweets. It can be a recipe. It can be a cat picture. It can be whatever it wants. You know, we, I've only had to. Tom's was very, uh, very ethereal yesterday as well. So uh, you know, that, that's totally fine. I was expecting a lot worse from what I got from Tom. So that was fine. So I'm <laughs> with what I got. So um, so yeah. Um, right. Okie doke. Um, without uh, further ado, I that was episode two of Mouthwash. Thank you for listening. Um, how do we do? Let us know and uh, the world know using the hashtag Mouthwash show i hope uh, you'll be proud please join me in uh, giving a rousing uh, emoji fest uh, to james go down to the heart and give him all your emoji love please drop him a line on twitter as well and tell him how well he did um, i can't thank you enough james for being um, on i think you're doing an incredibly important um, job and i do take my hat off to, to you and every investigative journalism out there i don't think your lives are made easier and i think you're doing a job that um, society will look back on and say why aren't we paying those people more um, um, and I do, um, yeah, I do hope you continue to do it. Uh, I think, you know, Edward Snowden is one of those characters and sort of moments in time that, that certainly has stayed with me. And I'm not, I'm, I am a tech enthusiast and that sort of thing. But I know my parents are also very aware of Edward Snowden. So the work has traveled, trust me. Um, cool. Thank, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Thanks also to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by kindly leaving me a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get any podcasts so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes which feature activists, AI experts, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.